Hi, I'm Holly Blakey. And I'm Ella Blakey. And we have Desi and Jossie. And Dad. And we started coming to Wanna Creek Prez in January of 2020, or as we think about it, right before COVID started. Mm -hmm. Our family's journey to Wanna Creek Prez actually started about 10 years ago. Today is mine and my husband's 10 year anniversary. And I remember being in church in the city a week before our wedding, and we were talking about how we would find a new church out in Oakland. And we talked about that we would shop around and really give it some time and thought and look at all our choices. And that day in church in the city, Bart Garrett came to speak and we both thought, okay, he seems really nice and smart and we'll probably check out his church. Well, then a week after our wedding, the first Sunday, the first church we visited was uh, Bart's church in Berkeley. And the congregation was extremely welcoming and kind and funny. And we just felt like God really led us there. And so we didn't do any more shopping. Uh, we stuck there. And then we went to the Oakland site and then to the Lafayette site. And then once the Lafayette site closed and Bart became the pastor of Walden Creek Prez, we happily uh, joined the congregation here. And we have felt equally, if not more so, welcomed. And um, everybody has just been so kind and we are so grateful for the new dynamics that uh, this church has brought us, including the childcare and just the variety of generations and uh, really just the love and kindness that we have received. What's your favorite part? The library with Miss Julie. Yeah, my She's kids. super nice. <laughs> Miss Julie is a big draw for all of us. Um, but we are so happy to have had made a beginning at Walnut Creek Press. Hey, Desi, what's your favorite part of Walnut Creek Press? Cookies. Cookies? Jossie, what's your favorite part about Walnut Creek Press? Nothing. And now we'll be reading God's Word. These are passages from Genesis 2 and 3. This is the count of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, up. The Lord, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work on the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put a man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of the life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Go. Now the serpent was more crafty 
than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, shrewim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This, this is, is the, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, thank you so much for uh, reading our scripture today and for sharing your honest opinions about WCPC. We are thrilled about that. Uh, good morning. My name is Tommy Brand. I'm one of the pastors here at WCPC, and I'm just so excited to be able to dive into this passage today as we continue on in week two of the series that's going to take us through the next couple months here um, called Once Upon a Beginning, where we are looking at these early chapters of Genesis, and then later we'll be looking at the beginning of John to find these foundational truths that help us understand our place in the world. But you know, the reality is, and Bart spoke to this a little bit last week, in the midst of these passages that have these deep, beautiful truths, there are also some challenging things and some oddities within them. Um, when I was in high school, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, and he had no faith background, didn't grow up in church, didn't know anything about being a Christian. And I mentioned that I was going to church that weekend. He knew that I was a person of faith. And so totally out of the blue, he just goes, yeah, you know, Tommy, I've heard you talk about your faith before. Uh, what do you believe? And I was like, wow, this is an incredible opportunity. I'm so excited about this. And I thought, I've never really had to answer this question this way before, so where do I start? I'll start once upon a beginning. So we're in the back of his car, and I dive in. I was like, yeah, well, you know, I believe that in the beginning, God made this garden, and he put a tree in it with fruit that we weren't supposed to eat. And then one day the snake came and told the people in the garden that they should eat that fruit, and so they ate it, and the second... I mentioned a talking snake. I just saw his face was like, oh no, why did I ask that question? And he very politely and quickly was like, oh cool man, thanks. Anyways, what do you want to do today? How should we spend our time? And as I look back on that, I, I have some regrets about how I dove in. And honestly, I don't regret that I started at the beginning. And I don't regret that I told truthfully the story of Genesis. But what I do regret is that I told it in such a way where some of the tough things, like a talking snake, obscured some of the deeper and more important things, the things that I really wanted him to know about the beginning of Genesis. And what we want to do in this series is to be able to take both of those things seriously, because we do realize there are some hard questions of kind of intellectual rigor about 
Genesis and about Scripture. And so we want this to be a place where you can ask those questions. If you, like my friend, hear this this morning and you're like, oh, talking snake, what are we doing? Um, Thank you for being here. We really want to take those questions seriously. And in fact, uh, as pastors, we'd love to talk to you about it. We've got some middle hour resources where we want to dive into those questions. But also, we really want to get into some of those deeper foundational truths. And that's my hope for what we can do this morning. So we kind of hope our full fall is going to address both of those. And this morning, what we're going to be looking at is what this passage has to say about our relationship with God. And what it has to say is actually quite beautiful. What we find in these early pages of Genesis is the description that we can be people who are called into a relationship with God. And let's put this on the screen. We can have a relationship with God where we are known and loved, where we are given a purpose, and where we are shown justice and mercy. And so what I want to do with the time we have remaining this morning is just talk through how we see those in this story. So let's start with this first one. In a relationship with God, we are known and loved. Um, I know we've got our kids in here today. Kids, we are thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much for hanging out. We're always excited when we get to welcome you in. Throughout my sermon, I have a couple of questions, and I'm going to just ask you to raise your hand um, for some of those questions, so hope you're with me. At least check back in for those parts. And also, if you're not a kid and you want to raise your hand, feel free to do that as well. So here's the first question. Raise your hand if you've ever looked at an adult right before you were going to do something pretty cool and said, watch this. If you've ever told an adult, watch this, raise your hand, I've done it. Yes, we've got some hands up and some people who just don't remember that they've done it. Uh, I have uh, two nephews, well, I've got many nephews, but I've got a kindergartner, a first grader, and my brother was telling me that they, uh, he took his kids to a pool this summer that had a slide, and he said they went down that slide 10,000 times, and every single time, what do they yell? Dad, watch this. And I think we all know that impulse, right? We all want to matter to people around us. We all want to be significant. We want to feel like someone would give us the gift of their attention. It means something to us when people remember our name. It means something when they call up, you know, a memory from our last conversation or check in on something we shared about our lives. Like, we really deeply want to be people who are known and loved. It's one of our core desires in life. And what's kind of crazy is that we're actually discovering that right now in America, there are very few people who would say that they have a lot of other people in their lives who know them and love them. In fact, in a recent study, half of Americans were estimated to say that they have three or less close friends. Half of Americans have three or less close friends, and 15% of people said that they have zero close friends. Zero people who they would say, know me, and love me. Zero people. I mean, that is deeply painful. And I think we see the ramifications of that kind of loneliness, that kind of unknownness, working itself out all through our society. I think we see, yeah, it just ripples out in so many ways. But I would also say that there's something kind of understandable about that, because in all honesty, being in a relationship where you're known and loved is hard. It takes work, it takes time, it takes effort, and most of all, it takes vulnerability, right? You have to put yourself out there in a way that says, what if they know me and they don't love me? What if they come to know who I am and they don't actually like me that much? And so it's scary. 
And so often I think we put up these walls that keep us from entering into those kinds of relationships. Well, here in Genesis, we find some good news, maybe a little bit uncomfortable news. But here's what that news is. In Genesis, we find that we have a God who knows us deeply. He is unbelievably attentive to us. He's crafted us. uh, He's with us. He knows us. And that might seem tough, but here's the good news about it. You don't have to opt into vulnerability with God. It is mandatory. It's just how it works when you have an omniscient creator. So you don't have to worry about that part. And the even better news behind it is that God knows you and he loves you. He loves you so much. And as we read through these pages of Genesis chapter 1, or chapters 1 and 2, we see that in a ton of ways. As I was uh, sitting in this passage, it sort of reminded me almost of like grandparents who are preparing for their grandkids to come over for the weekend. Like that's what you see in this creation story. God is preparing this garden and he's filling it with every fun activity he can think of. We're going to have mountains and rivers and trees to climb. Like this is going to be an awesome place to be. It's going to be beautiful and fun. I'm going to make sure all their favorite food is here. Like this is going to be an unbelievable place to be. God has prepared like a host this garden. And then he crafts Adam and Eve, and he breathes his life into them. And you can just see his love for them as he walks with them, talks with them, spends time with them, gets to know them. God is here delighting, absolutely delighting in Adam and Eve. And the truth is, that's how God is with us, too. He knows us, and He loves us. He delights in us. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to talk to us. He wants to hear from us. God loves us. You know, it might sound kind of like cutesy to say it this way, but I think it's true. We have the kind of God who every time we cry out to Him, God, watch this, is already paying attention to us and is already watching because that's how He feels about us. He is that parent who loves us and watches us and knows us. So what do we see in Genesis as we sort of lay down the foundations of our relationship with God? Well, the first thing that we see is that our deepest longings are fulfilled in our relationship with God. Our desire to be known and loved is ultimately found in our relationship with God. So that is excellent news. The second thing we find, and I said this earlier, but the second thing we find is that in a relationship with God, we are given a purpose. Okay, so kids, check back in with me if you checked out. (laughs) Second question. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever been asked the question, what sound does a cow make? Anybody? Yes. I don't know why. I apologize on behalf of all adults. We really like to know if you know what sounds different animals make. But let's do it. What sound does a cow make? Yes. Wow. We got full participation. That's fantastic. Okay. Next question for you. Raise your hand if you've ever been asked what you want to be when you grow up. Raise your hand if you've gotten that one. Yes. We've all gotten that one. Right? It seems like in life you go straight from what sound does X animal make to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that question kicks off a lifelong series of questions that just follow right along the same theme, right? Other people ask it, and we ask it of ourselves. So we go from, what do I want to do, to what can I do, 
to what should I do, to are they really letting me do this? My first job out of college was as a youth pastor, and I can remember the first time I was in a room with a bunch of students and other adults, and they were looking at me, and I was like, everybody here is okay with the fact that I'm the one in charge? Like, they're letting me do this? They were. Um, so then we ask, after are they letting me do this, am I doing this well? Then we ask, does what I'm doing matter? Then we ask, should I have done something else? And then we ask, what should I do now? And underlying each and every one of these questions is a question of meaning. It's of purpose. We want to know, am I spending my life on a worthy cause? Am I doing something that will make a difference? Am I someone who has a purpose? And we live in a world that has an unbelievable number of ways to try and answer that question. Everybody wants to tell you what makes a life meaningful. Every song, every show, every commercial, every book, every politician, every tweet and post makes a claim about how to answer the question, is your life meaningful? And those contrast with each other in a whole bunch of different ways. They will tell you that a life of purpose can be measured by dollars or promotions or degrees or friends or victories, or status symbols, or approval, or fill in the blank. What we find here in Genesis is that our purpose, the thing that gives our life meaning, is doing the thing that our Creator has given us to do. God said, this is what we read right here, I have put you here for a reason, and just as I have work to do, so do you. So God says, I created all of this in six days, so you will work six days, and like me, rest on the seventh day. God said, I have created this world, and now I am entrusting you with taking care of it and working it, which, like, what a cool job that is. God says, I have entrusted you to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, God says, I've made you stewards of creation, not to do whatever you want, not to just kind of make up all the rules, but to tend to it, to care for it, to bring out culture and civilization, to make music and food and families. Like, I have entrusted you with the work of stewarding forward creation. And if you look to the New Testament, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He puts it this way. He says, the greatest commandment, what should you do? How should you spend your life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what we read here in Genesis is that the reason we have a desire for meaning and purpose, the reason those questions are always with us is because we were created for a purpose. We were created to have a life of meaning. But what we also see is that the only place to find your true purpose is through your relationship with God and doing the work that he has called you to do. So here we find we are known and loved by God. We are given a purpose by God. And third and finally, we see that in a relationship with God, we find justice and mercy. Okay, last question. And we've had a we, high level of participation from adults, so thank you for that. So this is going to be an all-inclusive question. Raise your hand if you've ever said the words, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> if you didn't raise your hand, you'll probably have opportunity to say those words shortly. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, and any brave kids out there, and I would love a kid to answer this one, when you say the words, I'm sorry, what's the phrase you hope someone will say back to you? What words do you want to hear? Yes, sir. I'll give you candy? Yes. That's not what I thought, but I, now that's my new words that I want to hear when I say sorry. Yes. I was thinking the phrase, I forgive you, but I will substitute in, I'll give you candy as a great option as well. Yeah, we want to hear, I forgive you. You know, when I was in second grade, I was on the playground one day, and I was telling everybody, the kind of friend group that I was hanging out with, something that I was unbelievably confident in, which was that my uncle was the strongest man in the world. I believe there was no one stronger than him, and I told it with as much conviction as I had. And one of the girls who was there in the circle hearing that goes, you know, Tommy, I don't think that's true. And I was like, hmm, well, I know it's true, so don't worry about it. She's like, no, I actually saw a contest on TV one time for strongest man in the world, and your uncle wasn't even in it. He didn't even compete, so how could he be the strongest man in the world? Well, I surprised everyone in that circle. I suspect that maybe I'm going to surprise you. I certainly surprised myself when confronted with a pretty logical and reasonable explanation. I got so mad, I slapped her in the face. Yes, not a good response. Not what you should do. Hear clearly from me, kids. That was wrong. Don't take that lesson home out of the sermon. As I should have, I got in a tremendous amount of trouble. And I can still remember how guilty and ashamed I felt. I remember going home that day and feeling like I can never go back to school again, like I can never go see those people. I've done something too awful, too terrible to ever be forgiven, to ever go back. I just thought that was it. And you know, I think that we all, in certain ways, carry around these feelings of regret and shame and guilt for the things that we've done that we know we shouldn't have done, right? Either we should have done something and we didn't do it, or we did do something that we shouldn't do, we said something we shouldn't have said, or we didn't say something. However it comes together, we have these regrets. And if you're anything like me, one of my fears that I wrestle with so deeply is that my mistakes, the sin that I commit, is somehow actually the truest thing about me. I'm afraid that that is the thing that will define me, that that's really the story of who I am. Um, one of my just absolute heroes, I think this man has lived his life so beautifully, is named Brian Stevenson. And Brian Stevenson is a lawyer who works on behalf of those who are incarcerated. He writes about this in a book called Just Mercy. And Brian Stevenson says this. He says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I'm going to say that one more time. He says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And you know, that's something I deeply want to believe and that I am terrified isn't true. The fear that that is not true lives deeply within me. But the wonderful news is that what we see in Genesis is a story that agrees with Brian Stevenson. And actually, Brian Stevenson is a man of faith, so what we see is him agreeing with Genesis. After Adam and Eve have been created, placed in the garden, known God's love, been given purpose, we see them sin. They disobey God. We read this in this interaction. They eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat, and the ramifications are instantly, instantly seen. 
They are afraid of God now. They hide from Him. They are ashamed. They notice their own nakedness. Uh, when God confronts them about it, they're casting blame on each other, right? There's this fracture that happens in every direction. And this is a pivotal moment. This is going to tell us something about the kind of world we live in, right? What happens when people who are known and loved by God make a mistake? What does He do? How does He respond? Is that the end of their story? And what we see is God respond with justice and mercy. And so he comes to them and he takes their mistake seriously and he gives consequences. The snake loses its legs, securing its place for all history is the animal you least want to find out is in the same room as you and you don't know where it is. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and they're told that life is gonna get more difficult in a whole host of ways. The ground is gonna be harder to work. Child rearing is gonna be tough. Their relationship is gonna be fractured in certain ways. So there's both judgment that God brings on them, and he also allows them to experience the natural consequences of their decision. So God holds them to account. There is justice, but there is also mercy. So yes, God removes them from the garden, but he doesn't remove them from his presence, from his love, from relationship with him. He removes them from the garden, but it's not like he punts them out onto some moonscape. He puts them out in the world, which is incredible. Like, it's an awesome place to live. And when God finds them in their shame and guilt, he clothes them and restores dignity. So we see God's love continues even on the other side of our sin and mistakes. And here we see in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of God's ultimate fix for sin and evil, which is Jesus, where we hear that the, uh, the offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent, that evil will be ultimately defeated. So in this moment of betrayal, God promises justice and mercy that will ultimately restore all of creation. So what we find here is, yes, there is hope on the other side of our mistakes. No, we are not the worst thing we've ever done. We can actually be called back into that relationship of knowing and loving. We can be recommissioned into God's purposes. So if I could go back to my sophomore year of high school and be asked again that question, Tommy, what do you believe? I would start in the same place. I would start once upon a beginning. But what I would say now, that I didn't say then, is I would say, you know, I believe that in a relationship with God, we find that we are known and loved, that we are given a purpose, and that we are shown justice and mercy. And my prayer is that this would be a place where we can find that as well. And let me pray that for us right now. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for calling us into relationship with you. We thank you that you know us and love us, that you give us a purpose. And Lord, we thank you that our sin and mistakes are not the end of our story, but that you meet us in that place with justice and mercy and welcome us back into fellowship with you. We love you so much, and we are so grateful for who you are. Amen.